0: Welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing podcast. This
1: podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is uh, Faisal Khan here. Uh, I am the chair of the IOD's expert advisory group on science, innovation, and technology. Um, The EAG uh, have been working quite hard uh, to assist members in understanding uh, what AI actually is and what the opportunities are and what the risks are. We thought that one way of trying to get some of the key messages across would be to run a series of podcasts. Um, So we have in mind to run through, um, let's say, the technology side of it today, which is the first of the podcasts. uh, And this podcast is called What is AI? Um, In the future, we will also be doing podcasts on AI, the hype and the reality, then regulating AI, what can we do? Uh, what does AI mean for business, and then we'll try and do some sector coverage, looking at different verticals uh, and what the opportunities are uh, within uh, certain verticals. We'll consider AI uh, in the boardroom, and we'll also be looking at the socioeconomic impact of AI on stakeholders. So this is a very um, significant moment Uh for um, CEOs as they try to grapple with um, how to deal with the incredible changes that are going on um, through the AI technology. And I'd just like to um, give you an insight which came from um, the IBM Institute for Business Value when they interviewed 3,000 CEOs. And the key takeaways were that CEOs are weighing unprecedented urgency and risk. They are looking at generative AI changes and, well, that means everything changes. CEOs feel their organizations are ready for generative AI. Other executives are not as confident. Two out of three CEOs are acting without a clear view of how to help their workforce with the disruption and inevitable transitions uh, AI will bring and finally a lack of clarity is in impeding decision making and investments and, and that's uh, an unsettling uh, period for boards uh, for company directors and for uh, executives and employees so with that as a backcloth, I want to introduce our uh, panel uh, both of whom are members of the expert advisory group for the uh, IOD So let me start by introducing you to Pauline Nostrum. Pauline, would you give us a brief uh, bio of yourself?
0: Yes, thank you Um, and welcome everybody. Um, Thank you for listening today. Um, So I'm the CEO of Anacanta Consulting and Anacanta AI, uh, which are companies that research uh, uh, AI impact and risk for our global clients across multiple jurisdictions. And prior to Anacanta, I've held uh, various uh, statutory board roles in a range of technology organisations across UK, US, and Europe, uh, responsible for general management and commercial of AI-based technology. And I work voluntarily, and, and the IODs group isn't the only group I work with. Uh, I've worked with a number of organisations over many years, pioneering good practice and standards in AI. Uh, for example, uh, as a former chair of the BSIA, uh, which is a sector organisation, and lead author of their guide on facial recognition that's now going to become a british standard and i brought my company's ai governance framework to the uh, eag the iod's group which was which they took and they developed into ai in the boardroom gardens and i then presented this to the group i took it forward to the appg ai evidence session in january uh, 2023 of this year and also informed uh, the iod's input into the further session on uh, AI regulation in the UK I also work with standards bodies in particular I assist on the BSI the British Standards Institute National Artificial Intelligence Committee which coordinates the standards which will underpin the EU AI Act and the approach actually to governance of AI in uh, the UK uh, so that's me so back to you Faisal
1: Pauline thank you very much for that introduction so uh, Paul um, introduction to you Paul Well, Corin, would you give us uh, a a, a bio of yourself?
2: Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Faisal. And uh, great to be uh, involved today. And uh, hello to all our listeners uh, as well. Uh, I've had probably what's best described as a portfolio career, working in transport, education and defense. Graduated as an engineer originally, started work on radar systems, but then went back into academia, where I undertook a PhD, uh, looking at AI in a specific application to do with uh, chemical sensing. Uh, I left academia uh, following that time and over the past 20, 25 years, I've held a number of executive roles in small, medium and large businesses. And then just over three years ago, I set up Interim Consult. I founded it, I'm the uh, CEO, and we work with a number of industry and government clients, basically undertake analysis to solve complex problems, uh, typically in the sort of technology systems integration arena and we've got a particular specialism whereby we look at things such as artificial intelligence uh, and innovation. What are the opportunities? What are the threats? What's the disruptive impact on businesses uh, and industries?
1: Thank you, Paul. All right, so let's um, explore uh, some uh Ideas around what AI actually is, and more from the perspective of uh, kind of looking under the hood um, at what the technology is and what the technology is doing. So, can I ask um, Paul, first of all, uh, and then we'll, we'll ask uh, Pauline the same question uh, What is AI to you?
2: I think, first of all, what I say is artificial intelligence is completely different to human intelligence. Okay, human intelligence is complicated, it's uh, powerful, it takes in all sorts of forms of data. When I think about artificial intelligence, now my first encounter was effectively looking at problems such as things like pattern recognition. So when I look at AI now, I think of basically data models and algorithms that solve pattern recognition, forecasting, and optimization problems. I don't see anything more than that. I think the what's happened recently is if I wind the clock back 30 years, the same things I was looking at then are the same things that are being used now. But there's been an exponential increase in computing power and an exponential increase in data availability, which makes all those things that were probably foreseeable around about 30 years ago. So you know, autonomous vehicles medical diagnosis decision support all those things were foreseeable you know 20 30 years ago but now the technology the computing power and the uh, enabling technologies and data are are there so I still don't really see it as being anything more than that building you know those systems uh, using uh, algorithms and data models
1: okay a, a quick question for you Paul uh, you mentioned that lovely term, algorithm. What does it mean?
2: Well, I would say, and I remember somebody saying this to me many, many years ago, is that uh, effectively you know, an algorithm involves you know, two parts. There's the part that says you take the inputs and you get the outputs. And then there's the part that changes the variables within that, in that calculation from inputs to outputs. And that's the bit that people often refer to in terms of learning is actually tweaking the algorithm. But the thing about deep learning and things like neural networks, one of the key technologies that sits behind deep learning, is that what they can do is they can do with a lot of non-linearities. We don't live in a linear world. Okay? So they can do with non-linearities, taking data in different forms uh, from all sorts of different sources and generalizing and the means of continually changing that as it is exposed to more data. And therefore, it continually improves.
1: All right. Well, uh, thank you for that as a starter. Um, you, you talked a little bit about um, exponential increases. Uh, I, I'd like to come back to that theme a little later on because I think it is quite um, fundamental uh, in terms of the exponential Uh, increase in the capability of of AI and what other technologies are going to make that feasible. Absolutely, yeah. So let me turn to Pauline. Pauline, what does AI mean for you?
0: Well, I'm coming at this from a slightly different angle because I don't have a PhD in AI. Uh, I'm very much application-based, so real world, what do we do with this and what are the effects? Um, So um, what is AI to me? Well, uh, probably, you know, in terms of, what's presented to us on the TV. I was fascinated by how, you know, the spaceship computer that took over and killed the crew because uh, it got in the way of the mission. And and many sci-fi movies that imagined intelligent robots, uh, Star Wars, C-3PO, uh, to the Borg network of man-machine, um, sort of hybrid people that acting together as one, um, you know, reporting into and taking Tasks from the super being. Um, so this is what we're presented, you know, in our personal lives. Uh, and I imagined a world where both of these things existed. Uh, and um, they've crept in. So AI to me is uh, a type of technology that has been quite well concealed, yet we will have been exposed to it without realizing it. Uh, for example, the social media and internet-based services, uh, they've embodied AI technology since the beginning, you know, Google search, maps, and so on. Uh, software that delivers contextual information based on your imports. So will determine something new from your input uh, or your search prompt uh, will be familiar, most of us with Amazon. So their recommendation engine, which is an AI, is taking your inputs, your purchases, and then offering up related products. So it's adapting its outputs based on your inputs. Um, airlines whose prices increase or drop depending on your previous searches, that's really annoying. Um, they're essentially learning from your imports uh, to optimize their pricing. Um, if you use a VPN, that can fool them by the way. So those are some of the interactions I'm sure we will all have had. And they're essentially adapting. Uh, I, I see AI as a technology that saves time. And otherwise I could go and do something else more interesting or more relaxing but it's very important to be aware that you are interacting with it and you keep it under control, maybe by reducing the amount of data you give away. Uh, In a commercial context, um, I've been working with AI based technologies for probably 20 years or more, and that's to commercialize it and make it work in industrial applications, uh, looking at the impact of it uh, and also how it can be used safely or how to buy it, how, how to actually determine what's a good AI over and above another. And um, some of those applications uh, involve looking at the tasks that these technologies can perform, which are very hard for humans to do. For example, reviewing millions of data points to find a single anomaly. That's pretty much beyond the human's capability. Uh, Recognizing objects and images. So neural networks have contributed to making this very, very effective in certain industries, uh, whereby um, the network is fed examples and then a new input is shown to it. And it can determine by breaking down the features of that particular object, uh, and then having a guess at what it is. And that's the basis of uh, facial recognition software as well. Also, uh, other industries we use a predictive maintenance software in aviation to predict uh, the failure of a part on an aircraft and line up the supply chain. Uh, all of that happens as a result of various AIs. Um, sometimes they're stitched together to create a result. Uh, also, you know, I've used it in terms of demand forecasting and so on, uh, stitching to de- together multiple data points to um, make a determination. But this, um, I think what I'm describing here, a number of AIs, uh, which it, it, for a business user making decisions about which AI they may purchase, quite difficult to determine whether it's AI or not. And um, there's a lot of work going on which uh, serves to create a single definition which is starting to settle. And um, that definition is focused around the autonomy of the system, its ability to interpret, its ability to create new outputs and predictions as a result of those inputs. May have a trained model behind it that it refers to and then infers, and it can actually influence the environment. So those are, that's pretty much what AI means to me. I, I, I think what's really important to know is that AI is not just ChatGPT or, or Google's Bard. Um, AI has been performing extremely well in the industrial setting for a, a long time. You know, we're, we're quoting 20, 30 years of experience here around the table. Um, what ChatGPT has done has raised the awareness of the capability, so that the fact there is this thing, this big knowledge base, a large language model, and there's some kind of inference engine which is creating outputs. That's your generative AI, and that's made the technology accessible. and I would really encourage directors and and uh, leaders in businesses to go and have a go with it uh, and try it out because that's maybe the first you know steps or foray into understanding what AI can do so that that's that pretty much sums it up so back to you oh uh,
1: th- thank you Pauline um, interesting that um, you mentioned generative AI and uh, you also mentioned chat GPT um, th- that particular aspect of um, AI um, has Captured uh, everyone's imagination um, since um, OpenAI uh, launched ChatGPT, um, and there have been all sorts of um, you know interesting um, observations around students being able to write essays, for exam questions, and so on and so forth. But if if you put that the, the misuses of it on one side. It, ChatGPT and generative uh, is just one type of AI. So could you put that into the context of all the other types of AI that are being developed, which perhaps are not quite so visible?
0: Yes, certainly. Um, So yes, but the concept is there is a knowledge base and then there's an inference engine that then reasons on that knowledge base. And um, there are other AIs that do that. So uh, I mentioned facial recognition software. It's um, a topic that most people will know about in some way. If you're unlocking your phone, authenticating your banking transaction or protesting uh, because it's being used in your local shops. um, the, The principles that sit behind that is it's an AI that has a trained model and input data is presented to it and it reasons and infers and comes up with a similarity and um, they're kind of sitting in a group of AIs that do that but there are other types of AIs that just perform very simple tasks which may not even be classified in the minds of buyers as an AI at all so machine learning techniques uh, reinforcement learning which um, essentially is uh, described let's say by deep mind so AIs that can complete games. So they're given an input, so here's the answer, Um, or you've got this one task and it will learn from those inputs and adjust and come up with a solution. Uh, But there is a common theme in here, whether it's a very sophisticated neural network, which um, has been trained to recognize objects, whether it's two networks working together, so it's been trained can recognize, then it can create. So generative AI isn't just effective on language it's used to create deep fakes so that's how video and voice deep fakes or avatars because they're also used in very good ways to improve uh the speed to market for let's say customer service applications um, and so on it's the same sort of principle in that something is created so hopefully that uh, explains the range of ais Um, AIs might be performing a calculation, so predicting. They might be learning from one input and figuring out how to play a game. They may be reasoning on a knowledge base. So they've been trained to do something. And then there's an engine that extracts that learning and produces a result based on something you ask it, which is what GPT is doing. Uh, But also it's what uh, the object detection um, models are doing as well so present an image to the model is it a car is it a plane you know is it a train and so on and um it comes up with its best guess uh based on what it's been trained to do
1: okay that, that's great so um paul I, I want to ask you um about data because um without data uh, ai is nothing um, and and therefore to really um say exploit AI uh, digitization is fundamental so as a direction for um, CEOs and company direct, directors themselves how important is the aspect of uh, digitizing all your data so that you can start to exploit ai
2: I think you have to look at what type of problem you're trying to solve and what type of AI system might be available to, uh, to solve that problem. So, for example, Paulie mentioned earlier on the example of predictive maintenance for, uh, you know, for things like for assets that might fail. Well, in those instances, you know, you want to be able to gather data about the condition of the asset, the performance of the asset over time. Maybe there's some just asset characteristics. Those are the sorts of things that you'd want to gather in that instance. If you're in the uh, the e-commerce business, now what you're looking for are those patterns of engagement, the data associated with your, you know, your virtual engagement, you know, via the web, whatever it might be. How long do you browse something? How often do you go back? What sorts of things do you look at? And then it's easy for the systems to effectively look at the data, the tags that fit those sorts of things, and say, right, well, also, therefore, if these are the, these are the tags that are being Illuminated by the user, then actually these things might also be of interest. And so in those in that instance, you're looking to gather the data and there can be huge volumes of data about your pattern of interaction. But then there's something else, if you look at something such as you know, medical diagnosis or things like uh, inspection, what you're looking at gathering there is lots of data about the condition whether that's from an image, uh, whether that's from a medical record, that might suggest a level of risk. I mean, one of the key things here is AI doesn't give you a definitive answer. It's never a yes or no. It's always a degree of probability. So, for example, facial recognition is a really good example. You never really know whether it's a particular person or not. But what you can tell is whether it's a very good match. And that's the reason why data around... Uh, data around medical diagnosis where you've got a lot of data that says this indicates a problem this suggests there's not a problem okay in terms of identifying say an example such as you know a cancer from, from an image or from a medical record there's lots of data there but you need to know specifically what the problem is and gather the data you need to solve that particular problem effectively put a put a box around it and say right okay that is what we need to look at to solve this problem and that's why you need human experts because you, know, you and I, you know, people know as a subject matter expert what type of data you need to solve the problem that you're, tr- you're trying to solve.
1: Okay, well, thanks, Paul. Um, it's evident then that um, the quality of the data is fundamental and I guess um, the accuracy of the data is fundamental, and so uh, as organisations capture their data through digitization, they, they need to have processes to, let's say, verify the quality and the accuracy. Will that be true?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, the reality is, is uh, if you train uh, an, an AI system uh, on poor quality data, you know, you'll get poor quality results. Put at a simple level, you know, if it is a grainy image, it's going to be much more difficult to spot an anomaly than if it's a high-resolution image. Okay, that would be a really straightforward uh, example. But there are others as well whereby, let's say, you know, you're looking at something like an inspection uh, regime. Okay, well, actually, if you haven't got not just accurate data but sufficiently available data, about what that inspection regime needs. Say, if you're expecting a bridge, if you've not got sufficient data to train the AI system, you're not going to get a very good product. So I think there's the the accuracy, call it the quality, and call it the availability. It comes back to the exponential point about data availability earlier on. Now, there's so much more data available now than there ever was before. The Internet of Things has provided a huge opportunity to gain access to a whole host of data previously was not available. So all of that can be built in to help you solve your particular problem.
1: Yeah. Perfect. I'm going to um ask um uh, Pauline uh, um a similar question uh around data um uh which expresses itself in terms of this thing that we call bias. Uh you know and one of the challenges for um, AI is producing results which are bias. So Pauline, would you explain what bias is and um, what, what the implications might be in terms of use cases that we already know?
0: Well, I think in terms of understanding this as, as a non-technical listener, um, it's a leaning towards one particular group, categorization, uh, answer set, um, as opposed to others. Uh, And the answers are pulled towards that, as opposed to providing a spectrum of possibilities. And I think this is best demonstrated through case study examples, where bias, uh, which has been learnt by the model as a result of feeding it data, which uh, had a um, historical problem in it. I'll give you an example, let's say, We look at the Dutch government's problem uh, whereby they resigned actually during the pandemic, um, which was slightly under the radar for many people. They resigned because they had allowed an AI that they procured to prosper in their child welfare system. And the AI had been, um, essentially what it did, it automated um, the racial categorization and then bias targeting of dual nationals who made mistakes on... Uh, claim forms and other characteristics and find them and withdrew benefits and did lots of horrible things to people for many years. And um, this was one of the foundational case studies that drove some of the aspects of the EU AI Act. Uh, It it categorically covers um, the problems that arose here, which were rooted in bias, because the algorithm, the AI, was trained using historical data, was never checked, Um, to confirm that it was actually a fair representation. The demographic uh, was was fair and accurate. And um, that's a real world example. So there was bias in the data. The system had already been doing these things. So without the AI, the system had been making poor decisions on the basis of race and other characteristics. And uh, another example is probably Amazon who attempted to use an AI algorithm um, and we interchange the word AI and algorithm quite frequently. You need to perhaps appreciate they probably are the same one and the same thing. You are talking about an AI. Uh, Amazon tried to use a recruiting tool uh, which automatically sifted through CVs and recommended the best candidate. And um, it, it, basically, it was caught out because um, uh, cert- candidates have certain characteristics, I think it was females in this case. They weren't getting offered the jobs. And that's because it was trained on data which historically was biased towards males, put simply. Uh, so it learned to um, do that really efficiently. And this is where AI can go really horribly wrong if there isn't somebody, you know, from the development group right up to you know the testing, and then the user who puts this uh, you know into action in their businesses, they need to be aware that bias might be there. And in order to test that, you need a wide demographic um, asking it questions, uh, whatever they may be. And um, in larger organizations, this kind of oversight for bias can be served quite well by independent committees. Sometimes uh, companies put this to the outside world, to third parties, uh, but a committee that is uh, perhaps gathered, you know f- across the functions, you know, into the various layers in a business to garner feedback in terms of the results, whatever they may be, um, could be a good way of actually determining whether bias exists or not. And then at a technical level, you know, bias data sets can be tested for bias, technically, but what I'm talking about is when that AI hits the outside world and hits the user and starts having an effect and impact on people, uh, there has to be a means by which you know that. <laughs> So um, it's good to have some sort of independent review and oversight over the use of that technology.
1: Yeah, okay, that, that's great. And we uh, will cover the um, risks associated with uh, using AI, of which bias is is one um, type of risk. Uh, uh, in, a, in a future podcast, when, when we look at governance, around um ai projects and indeed regulation uh you know what regulation needs to be in place to prevent things like uh bias running away with itself as it did in the dutch uh use case okay um, that leads us neatly into uh, another topic which i wanted to cover uh, which is essentially the question of how may ai impact a commercial organization and that that's a pretty broad question, and uh, you know interpret it however you want to. But Paul, would you like to kick us off on that?
2: Yeah, I think there's probably a couple of uh, examples whereby you can see that AI is going to be hugely disruptive. I mean, we're we're all familiar with you know the intelligent chatbots that you get for things like customer support. But the sophistication of the engagement of those types of things, you know, when you call the call center, is going to increase, and so the need for sort of contextualization by a human supported by a chatbot will be much, much less. So that that industry is going to be hugely disrupted. You know, those chatbots we see will be much more sophisticated. If you think about personalised learning uh, and also assessment, uh, there's a particular model now, you know, it's typically, you know, is uh, based around teaching, around a lecturer, around a teacher. There's gonna be so much now, so much more now moving forward, where so much of that can be Personalised and tailored using complementary AI. It understands what you what you learn, what you don't understand, and therefore where the effort needs to be applied. But if you think about, if you like a bigger bigger impact, I've got a view that consultancy could be significantly impacted by AI. Because if you look at some of those tasks, such as things like uh, that, consultants get paid for uh, research and analysis. Uh, advisory type services, reporting, presentation, creation, things like project management, they all lend themselves to automation through sophisticated AI in some way. What that means is that the volume of activity uh, in terms of hours or days expended by consultants can become a lot less. And also those lower level activities. I mean, the research and analysis and you know, the report generation are really good examples when you look at things like uh, intelligent search and also generative AI. What you then need in that particular business, and it's a huge business, you know, billions of pounds, billions of dollars around the world. What you then actually are creating is you're taking away all the low level type consultancy skills. And what you actually need on top of that is the high value, high skill consultants that can take that information and use it productively in some way. So I think consultancy is one of those areas whereby AI is not normally talked about in terms of uh, there being an impact. But I think it's that type type of service that comprises human interaction. Research can be much more structured using an AI system. I think those types of applications, those are the sorts of industries whereby you can just see them being turned on their head. You know, many more clients will be able to internalise those types of capabilities because of the availability of AI, and they will therefore have less demand on external consultants.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the message that I'm getting is um, professional services in general you know, um, is going to be going to have big impact in the sense of whether it's accountancy, whether it's legal profession, whether it's consulting, whether it's teaching, indeed, whether it's medical, you know, e- even um, GPs are going to be un- uh, impacted by all of this stuff. So I get that. So I'm going to ask Pauline to elaborate a little further on the impact on commercial organisations.
0: Yes, certainly. Um, well, I think the the point Paul's made leading on from that is is a good one. Um, those... Um, externally, the outsourced elements uh, could be undertaken by AI. But in reality, organisations do need to skill up in these areas. Uh, but it won't see an end to external validation uh, because you get this groupthink approach uh, in companies. Um, and they need to look outside. So otherwise, they disagree with all the points they've made, um, potentially. So in terms of impact, um, just looking at it from a slightly different angle, uh, there could be a risk of doing nothing. So if companies decide we're not going to do anything, then because it seems a bit hard and um, there's a cost associated and we're quite happy doing what we're doing. Uh, but in reality, the competitors are probably doing it. So, you know, um, loyalty, I always say loyalty to brand only goes so far unless you're Apple. Um, and But nevertheless, they've still been pushed, you know, to deliver value. You know, it's not just about the cool look and feel of the product. If you look at other examples, you know, the risk of doing nothing. How did Netflix manage to survive? Because there was a point when they were looking extremely, you know, um, their survival was tenuous, shall we say, but they developed their recommendation engine and delivered excellent customer service as a result of that, a very much more enjoyable and relevant service. Uh, and of course, they, they diversified their product lines and created their own brand of productions but there's an example they sat there and waited and then they had to react but they've done it extremely well um, other impacts well we need to talk about the elephant in the living room which is the potential impact on jobs um, businesses clearly want to increase productivity uh, but that needs to be balanced um, certainly on looking at you know look at the procurement checklist should we say if we buy this and implement it which jobs may be impacted by this uh, and then make a decision which is based on actually looking at those roles. If they are de-skilled as a result of the AI, uh, how can those people develop their careers? And an example of this might be a junior coming in, uh, let's say technical support. They have to get up to speed with um, all the operational manuals of the products. Uh, could take weeks and that becomes a valuable skill and it's uh, knowledge within that business. AI comes along, digests it within seconds, and the junior now just uh, learns how to prompt it. So the new skill is prompt engineering, not actually having the knowledge in their brains. Uh, and that could become a bit of a dead end Dead end for that individual. Um, is that ethical? Should, should companies be doing that? Uh, it's gotta be balanced, gotta be weighed up. Um, I, I use Amazon as an example, where AI-driven efficiencies have um, pushed them to a position in the marketplace where they're virtually untouchable. They have virtually no competition, Uh, but they've used the AI to deliver the customer um, journey. And they've done that extremely well, but where that's going now is they've got robotics, they've got software driven AIs, which are very, very good at getting the order into the warehouse and finding those products wherever they are and then they are robotics to then deliver those products physically to those who pick from those bins and then put them in the packaging so those people who are picking It's it's only it's not a big step uh, to consider that it might be a robot that's doing that a humanoid so is that okay uh and that's that's a balance so the risk it needs to be balanced um so other impacts. So deep fakes, you know, I mentioned that earlier in terms of generative AI. Deep fakes um, could become somewhat of a problem. Uh, we're already seeing very sophisticated, socially engineered cyber attacks. I've certainly seen quite a few very good ones. Uh, and with deep fakes, you can actually emulate a voice. You know, this could be the CEO saying to, um, you know, the FD or CFO, send uh, 100,000 to this company. And it's a message. And it's backed up by an email that looks like it's from the CEO. And then the CFOs, right, okay, we've got to send this, uh, and they do it. And um, that um, could have severe consequences for that organization. These are very convincing. Um, companies need to protect themselves against AI. Um, and that's an education process. But equally, deep fake technology can create avatars and do a really good support, um, support job you know, in propping up customer service and making it very efficient. So those are some, some of the examples I would give in terms of how it may impact. And there's a balance, um, and I don't want to put forward a doomsday scenario here, but uh, I, I would really recommend that directors get up to speed in terms of how the technology works. You don't have to uh, be a computer scientist, but it's really good to actually get into understanding the dynamics of it how it can be used and the impact that it may have on the workforce and also what the reputational impact might be, uh, which we've already seen some stories already where entire customer service teams have gone from companies uh, affecting hundreds of people. And it's hit the mainstream press because we don't like that. You know, we actually want people to be employed and to achieve happy, fulfilling lives as a result of that. So there's got to be a balance, but there are huge benefits if used in the right way. Uh, Just final point on this, companies on digitalization, uh, there are companies out there that are still on paper. Uh, And um, this this is a reality, quite a few actually, and it might be a massive leap for them to get all of their material digitized. And then the banking industry has obviously been through this pain and they've done it. but for the smaller companies, how can they actually use AI without digitizing everything? Uh, and they could subscribe to um, AI as a service and take parts of their business operations into an AI engine without having to implement some very expensive system right across it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so I think, um, and just to sum up what you, what you both said, um, AI um, is a disruptive technology um, and like many tech, uh, disruptive technologies that certainly I've witnessed and I've been part of um, in, in the last uh, 40, 45 years, there are opportunities and there are threats. And it's imperative upon almost every commercial organization to examine both the opportunities and the threats. Because if you don't uh, examine, uh, the opportunities your competitor is going to do it, yeah. So, so I, I think that's really important. Equally, um, th- th- there are threats um, which you know, uh, both Paul and Pauline have, have uh, articulated, uh, even even to the existence of complete departments within uh, companies. So, I think this is this is a, a, an area where I think all company directors, um, all boards really need to put some focus because there's no going back you yeah. know ai is here and there's no going back paul any further thoughts on that
2: yeah i think you have to compare what's going on now to the uh, to the industrial revolution the world then moved from what was effectively you know, a manual sort of agricultural if you like economy to one which is automated production capacity increased there were lower unit costs Those are the same sort of things we're going to see with AI. There's a lot of societal and economic change that went alongside that. Uh, Those very low-skilled and medium-skilled jobs were lost. Uh, And that will be the case now in things like the service industry, as Pauline was saying. But also, if you look at things like innovation, the innovation cycle now will be a lot shorter. Uh, There's some good examples of that in drug development. Services will be able to come to market much, much faster. Okay, and businesses there and therefore business models are going to need to adapt much, much faster. And I think this is the reason why a greater understanding is needed by leaders and directors because, you know, if you don't see that revolution coming, you're likely to be on the wrong side of the outcome. Then, and it might already
1: be here for all you know.
2: Well, it, it is here already for too many degrees. I mean, some you know, look at some of that disruption that we talked about earlier on, you know, I mean, things like just having. Uh, yeah, you know, mobile phone, but it's much more than just a mobile phone in your hand. With all the camera technology and all those, uh, all those apps as well, yeah. uh, location data. Everyone's got Google Maps in their pocket now. Yeah.
1: All right. Um, so let, let's uh, kind of move on then. Given there are uh, threats and opportunities, um, if if you were uh, either the chairman uh, or the CEO um, of a company. Um, what, which stakeholders do you think are important for you to get on board? Let me start with Pauline.
0: Very good question. Uh, well, you need to understand the stakeholder landscape, and um, you know to do a bit of a plug um, of IOD's absolutely excellent training, uh, both towards the Chartered Director qualification, but some of the CPD uh, that is available um, if you're a member. Um, helps with the stakeholder mapping process. And you learn that if you do their leadership course. So it will be different for different businesses. Uh, so being able to map stakeholders effectively is a really good start point. And I could give you a range of examples. So it might be a local community around a business uh, that is um, that was otherwise providing goods and services into that business. The business then takes on board AI that discovers that actually, if we buy from this other region, we'll make more money, and the local community collapses as a result. Uh, That's not just AI that does that. This happens, uh, you know, in in business. And these are the kind of decisions that can cause public outcry. So the public, uh, who is going to get upset by this This is a great way of thinking about stakeholders, and how much influence do they have. So the external stakeholders might be the public, it might be um, the buyer, it might be if it's a complex supply chain, uh, the end customer who has an issue with this particular um, uh, activity, but internal stakeholders are very important to consider. And I'm sure those who have implemented digitalization uh, plans within their businesses uh, will be acutely aware of some of the issues there, that you have sabotage uh, blank, point blank refusal to do things. And it's many, it, it, it is mainly a leadership failure if that happens. We have to accept this. We're leaders. If, if it happens, it's probably as a result of not consulting and getting the people around the table and explaining uh, what the impact might be and to get their views and to bring this along and lead by consensus so that when the new tech comes in, it isn't sabotage and then left in the corner, you know, and have experienced that. And it wasn't through any malicious intent. It was just people were scared. They thought they'd lose their jobs. And um, that was just through digitalization. So they rejected it. So the internal stakeholders, who will be affected within the organization, the leaders must consult with them. And it might be the union, might be representatives and discuss what the impact may be. And then if that is considered acceptable to explain and to focus on training and bringing people along um, so that it's um, a successful implementation. Without all of that, then um, you know there can be challenges along the way.
1: All right, thank you, Pauline. Now, um, Paul, stakeholders, what, what's your view?
2: Well, I think there's, uh, there's a whole host of things here. There's a, and there's, there's two, two angles to look at this. One is to say, okay, if you're a business, your stakeholders, they don't really change. Now you've got your customers, you know, you've got your suppliers, key stakeholders, that value chain within your business will be changed by AI. And Pauline's already talked some examples to do with logistics mm-hmm. and, uh, and distribution, you know, the, the Amazon examples. Those things will change. As they change, you need to work with your stakeholders and also bring in new stakeholders that may well have AI, the AI expertise that you need or that you need to buy in in order for you to continue to do your business and compete. And the way I would describe this is AI is a technology. And as a technology change, it's going to be hugely disruptive. But there are some models, effectively, whereby you say, well, the basics of business mean that you should always be looking at that combination of people, process, technology, and culture. AI throws that up in the air. And so as you go through that process of change, whether you're changing processes, you're having to retrain people, reskill people. The culture might change because the way we do things around here changes because some of that is to do with AI. You have to look at that whole mix. So there's the internal stakeholders and then there's the external world, your customers and your suppliers. Some customers may not want to deal with a company that is heavily reliant on AI and has black boxes and they don't really quite know what's in the black box. Transparency might become one of their requirements. And it's the same with your supply chain as well.
1: Excellent. Great points, uh, Paul. So um, we, we have a few minutes left and um, I, I, I want to kind of uh, use them to um, be a bit futuristic. Um, you know, we've kind of landed in a space which um, was being predicted 10 years ago when when people were talking about AI is going to come in the future. Well, it's come. Um, What technologies are going to accelerate the pace of uh, AI and its capabilities over the next five years? Do you want to have a go, Pauline?
0: Yes, certainly. Um, So... Yeah, looking into the future. Well, um, the books I was reading when I, when I was a younger person really predicted a lot of this, and um, mainly science fiction, amongst other things. And um, there was a particular book, um, "Moton God's Eye, who's Niven and Purnell, and the concept behind this book was that the human race stopped evolving because um, technology could augment humans and uh, as a result of that, there was no need to evolve. But actually, if you look at the positive side of that, it's kind of happening. But um, I feel that to make AI more usable, uh, the advances in battery technology need to accelerate. We need to find sustainable sources um, because what we're doing at the moment is not sustainable. Uh, the miniaturization of technology to make it more wearable so, I would say battery technology, and um, the obvious one is is quantum you know computing, uh, but that's not really wearable. so I think if I try to answer this simply, I see augmentation of people um, through wearable technology, and that wearable technology is enabled through the advances in battery technology, that would be my take on this
1: okay, that's great. Um, so i better go and get myself a, uh, uh, an Apple Watch then, hadn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, what, what are your thoughts?
2: I think it's the same uh, areas, really. If you look at things such as uh, quantum computing, you know what they unleash is the capability to, to process a lot more data from a lot more sources. So if you look at applications such as uh, virtual reality and wearables, The data that is available to you is much, much greater. With quantum computing, you're going to have a lot more power to deal with that, to digest it and to do things with it. I think the other side of it, though, is there is a human side to this, whereby it might be that the human capacity and appetite and attention requirement limits what the applications are in real life. Because there's the potential to do things, and then there's the conditions that need to exist for you to do them in. And I think we might be approaching a point whereby there is so much that can be done, and there's so much, if you like, competition you know, for your attention, that actually it could just be capping out. And I think it will be in fields where there's a particular problem, in things like defence, in medicine, those are the areas where you'll probably see the fastest and most impactful applications of AI. I think you and I, consumers, will reach a point where there'll be enough AI around to get the most value out of us, if you like, from a, from a customer perspective. But I think if you look at the wider world, some of those, you know, more sort of existential threats around the world, those are the sorts of areas where there may be issues.
1: Yeah, a great point, Paul. Uh, Okay, so um, to round off uh, my comment uh, on the future is that directors and um, uh, board members need to not just keep an eye on AI, they need to keep a track on parallel technologies which are all developing extremely fast, one feeding off the other, and then feeding back to, on itself, to accelerate the pace of change. So I would keep an eye on the Internet of Things, I'd keep an eye on virtual reality, augmented reality, drones, for heaven's sake, there's gonna be a massive future for drones, uh, powered with AI. Quantum computing, you know it, it's a, a term that very few people understand, well worthwhile uh, exploring what quantum computing is gonna do for us in the future and uh, Pauline's point about wearables. So I I think with that, um, we'll conclude uh, today's podcast. But just to say that our next topic will be AI, the hype and the reality. So I hope you'll all join us uh, for the second in this series. And thank you, Paul. And thank you, Pauline, for being outstanding panellists.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. hope that you have enjoyed this director's briefing podcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy hyphen unit at iod.com.